0: Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shazad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our guest today is an Associate Professor of Computer Science and the Chair of the Department of Computer Science at Makare University in Kampala in Uganda. His research focuses on computer science-driven solutions to the prevailing world challenges. He is passionate about contributing to quality computer science education that is of sufficient breadth and depth, practical and fast enough. Currently, he leads several innovative and research initiatives that aim to create and apply computational methods and tools that can improve the quality of life, especially in the developing world. He holds a Ph.D. and M.Sc. in Computer Science from Viraha University at Brussels in Belgium and a B.Sc. in Computer Science from Makerere University in Uganda. I'm excited to welcome our guest, Professor Engineer Benu Mugisha. Our interviewer today is Katushabe Kalorin. She is an assistant lecturer at the Department of Computing Library, Science and Information Technology at the Bishop Stewart University in Uganda. Her research is on Internet of Things, specializing in wireless intelligence sensor networks at the African Center of Excellence in Internet of Things. She is interested in air quality monitoring across sub-Saharan Africa, more so looking closely at the effect of bad air on the lungs. Welcome to the show: Engineer and Shabe. Thank you, our host Haj.
1: And thank you so much, engineer, for coming to the show. I'm so glad to be your interviewer today.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Karen, for having me. And thanks to Shahzad as well.
1: I have a number of questions on potential computation technologies across Africa. Computing and IT are inherent and key players of the 21st century world from large services to personal computers and small devices like smartphones, smart TVs, smart fridges, etc. However, access to these technologies is not homogeneous among countries. We know that the imaginary borders of digital exclusions are very close to the lines associated with digital inequality. Considering, for instance, the internet access in richer countries, more than two-thirds of the population are typically online while usage rates are much lower in the developing world with the eastern and central africa having around 25 percent one of the lowest rates worldwide what are the ways to overcome these inequalities and make technology accessible to all the african population
2: yeah definitely as rightly said uh, there's so much potential for technology but you can also not ignore the many barriers that are currently present in terms of access to this technology. So the question in terms of how we can increase access or try to break these barriers to access to technology, I think calls for approaches from different facets. The first question we need to answer is, if there are barriers to access to technology, what are they? And then who is responsible for addressing these challenges We know that access to digital technology, of course, relies a lot on infrastructure setup, and infrastructure here means that you need to have, for instance, connectivity reaching different parts of the country, but then there's also the aspect of the end node or device that people use to access the technology services, which is the mobile phone. I think we have opportunity that we are fortunate that the uptake of mobile phone has increased drastically over the last few years, even though the connectivity challenges still exist so I think there's something we can learn when you look at the mobile phone uptake in Africa. Usually I use this kind of a scenario that when you look at uh, the rest of the world, especially looking at the mobile phone uptake, before the mobile phones, the rest of the world embraced fixed-line technology, what we'd call landlines. And Africa was largely connected. And I think with the use of the mobile phone technology, we've seen a greater uptake, even when we do not have any presence of the landline technology. So what we learn from this, I think what we learn from this kind of evolution is that Africa actually has an opportunity to increase access to these technologies without having to go through the same series of steps that other developed countries are going through. So what am I saying is that one of the ways to increase access is not necessarily to look at the traditional uh, series of steps that other countries might have had to go through to be able to reach the level they are, but rather trying to look at the current context and the challenges and the resources and opportunities we have and the challenges as well, and then trying to see how can Africa increase access to technology and digital services on its own terms, so to speak. And this means trying to understand the context and innovating for improved technology access from closer to the context. So this would mean that how can we ensure that more people have access to technology-driven services, even when we have the available technology bottlenecks? I think that's the important question to consider in terms of increasing access, not only looking at we need to have the state of the art infrastructure across the board, but even trying to think about how we leverage the available technology and the understanding of the complex, be able to provide the technology solutions to improve access to technology services.
1: You said I believe in the transformative power of computational technology and intelligence to tackle complex society challenges and improve people's lives. What are these computational technologies currently available that can help facing the complex challenges of Uganda society and improve people's lives? And how about potential solutions that might not be available right now, but that you are envisioning being applicable in the near future?
2: Yeah, thank you, Karen, for another great question. Yeah, so just, you know, restate what you say. My personal belief is that computational technology has the potential to tackle some of the complex society challenges affecting people and hopefully deliver better livelihood in many ways. So why do I believe in this statement? So one is that I have lived in the context, specifically in the Ugandan context, which could represent some similar context of the continent, where you see a resource constraint, in many sectors and in many areas of service delivery. This ranges from lack of enough human resources, it could have been a hospital. You know, there are not enough medical doctors say, to attend to the patients. The doctor's patient pressure is way higher maybe than what is recommended. If you go in the agriculture sector, you see the same. Maybe the ratio of an extension worker to the smallholder farmers is also quite high. You've got education. You look at the ratio between maybe a teacher and the number of students is also quite high. You look at the resource sector, maybe the available resources to deliver a certain service is also not sufficient. So this gives me conviction that we have these constraints in the different sectors. And when you look at each of these different constraints, you see many opportunities in which computational technologies, specifically computational intelligence, can be used to sort of address some of these resource gaps, either to increase efficiency or compensate for lack of expertise, or even trying to augment on the available expertise so across these sectors that I'm talking about, when you look at the future, let's take a sector like education, for instance. We know that the African population is growing and it's predominantly youth, and the youth need to be skilled, educated, but we also know that we might not necessarily have the resources and infrastructure to be able to deliver that skilled youth. So the opportunity for technology there is how can we leverage technology to improve skilling of the youth, as an example. So there are many opportunities if you dissect that problem as a well. whole. It can range from, you know, delivery of the content itself. It can also be in terms of how learners maybe engage with new environments. Maybe you have possibilities. For instance, to measure how learners are learning across the different parts of the continent, using technology aspects, you have ways to make the learning more interactive or access resources that might not necessarily be available in the physical world. Learners could be able to see this information interact with virtual objects that are not necessarily present in the physical world, which would provide a better learning experience, maybe in science, in biology, and many others. So, all these different examples really promise the opportunity. Every sector you can pick on, you just see many opportunities where technology can be harnessed to improve efficiency, increase access, and cause more impact on society. And that's my conviction that if we can harness computational technology, we can be able to address some of the bottlenecks that we have within the different sectors and hopefully deliver better lives to the population.
1: Thank you so much, engineer. There are several environmental data sets and IoT open initiatives across the world. Not to mention the multitudes of satellite data that are publicly available from NASA, ESE, and so on. But how can we put data from different complex levels in the service for the civil society, especially considering the digital inequality we mentioned before? how can the outputs of data sciences be translated to communities and enforce data-driven decisions?
2: Yeah, thank you for another great question. So the opportunities for data-driven decisions start with even the challenge that you highlighted on, let's say inequalities in the communities. That's already an opportunity to use data to actually see that these inequalities exist. That's just like one straightforward example. So we know that in many ways, many people Either those with authority, or those affected by policies, or those that actually need of services, many times they do take the decisions without necessarily informed by the best available evidence. I do emphasise what the best available evidence, because this is an evolving field. We cannot say that you know we can get all the data we need to make decisions, and we cannot wait for that moment. The opportune moment is for us to see that with the available technology can we be able to deliver the best available evidence to inform decision making every member of the community. So for one thing, if we target the population, we can use the data to start giving communities a voice for authorities or people who are supposed to take care of certain issues to privatize those challenges. Let me give you an example. For instance, just imagine that any person on the planet can be able to know that their environmental conditions are being violated or they are not meeting the expectations of what is considered as a health environment. So every day they wake up, they are able to get the details that, you know what, the environmental conditions in my area are being violated. So that gives individuals powers to be able now to demand for action from people who should take care of that. But the flip side of that is that the authorities now, if the Ministry of Environment, let's say in a country or at a village level, is able to wake up every day and see the environmental risk every member of the household within their community or within their country, the risk they are faced with, imagine the potential of taking decisions to address this kind of problem. So when it comes to data-driven decisions, These are the opportunities that we're looking at. We can be able to make the data accessible to people who should take decisions at the individual level, but also at the authority level. And then hopefully this can be used to inform decisions. And again, this is not specific to the case I've just given on environment. If you look at the same in education, if every day someone can be able to look at the number of learners across the country, how many learners have uh, not been able to access educated education in a given day, for instance, so this gives people now the data and information to start prioritizing the problem, as opposed to you know discussing these problems at the global level where there might not be actionable data available. I think the future of, of data-driven decisions is to make this data accessible to the different stakeholders in a way that it makes problems that people normally talk about. Become more visible, relatable, so people can start to care. And then people who are supposed to take decisions can also start to see the areas maybe where they might need to invest more energy or resources to cause the changes that they would want to see in their communities. Ultimately, we know that the world is driven by decision making. As I said at the start of my response to your question, is that what we want to see is that anyone who makes a decision in this chain has access to the best available evidence. And this available evidence, we don't want to only make it available to people with access to computers and internet, but actually making it, breaking it down ultimately, accessible to everyone with the available channels of access.
1: Thank you so much, Professor. So looking at low-cost sensors, IT, and air quality in Uganda, what is the current status of air quality in Uganda? And what is the level of the development of air quality monitoring networks in the capital Kampala and other cities in Uganda?
2: So this question relates directly to one of the initiatives I've been very passionate about in terms of how we can leverage technology understanding, understanding of our context, understanding of the challenge it face each or everyone in the country to build a solution to address this challenge. So that's air pollution challenge. As you might know, you know, air pollution is one of the major environmental public health risks currently present, affecting you know millions of lives being lost every year, productivity is lost and so on. So, just to give you a bit of background before I go into the status of air quality. So, a few years ago, having faced this challenge and living in this challenge and seeing the need for data and the need for a solution to air pollution challenge. I initiated share to the team, which is now really a team effort. So this team effort started envisioning how do we create a solution that is able to provide the right technology for us to address the air pollution challenge. So we started building the custom air quality monitors called Aircore. And these were specifically designed to be responsive to the challenge that we have, but also to be responsive to work with the viable technology. It's very well known that the technology that's built in another context, in other countries, Bringing it here might not necessarily deliver you the solution that you want. Uh, so, we started with going through a series of steps how do you create the custom technology to be able to address this complex challenge? So, we started building the custom air quality monitors through being installing across the city. So, in terms of the numbers, fast forward to your question what is the status of air quality monitoring and what is the status of the network? So, we currently have a network of over 120 monitoring devices. Across the country. And each of these nodes is a way to give us data on the state of air quality that individuals, cities, and different urban spaces having at any one time. So what does this mean? It means that you now have an ability to be on a single platform. You can see what's the air quality people are breathing in, in the different urban spaces in the country. Of course, the biggest concentration being Kampala city, which is the capital and the major city of Uganda. So in Kampala alone, we have close to 60 or 70 nodes within the city. Again, different parts of the city, higher concentration, being able to derive air quality in different spaces in the city. So what do we see across the city, of course we know as is the case with many urban spaces, the air quality is not that great. So across the city, we see that the pollution levels tend to be high in the different parts of the, of the city. And we are working, you know, so hard to see how do we then translate this information into action.
1: Back to the topic of data-driven decisions. What is the situation of environmental governance and air quality management in Uganda? Is there a role of participatory policies? Are there structures or programs that facilitate citizens to participate in public policy development?
2: I would yes, the structures are there. As you know, as any government, there are governance structures up to the grassroots level that provide opportunities for everyone to voice their concerns in a way. But in, in a matter that it will, of course, inform policy and other government decisions or decisions on other matters that might affect people. However, The major gap that I think we found is that um, when people are not empowered with evidence or data and information, then they are not at a level where they can be able to participate and engage in informing policy or even discussing any policies that affect them. So there's the opportunity for data, as I was explaining a bit earlier on, that if you provide data to information and information citizens, citizens become aware of the issues that affect them. They also now have evidence so they can start demanding for better actions or decisions from the government. And they can also start pushing for policy changes in their neighborhood. I'll give you an example. When we put up one of our monitors in one of the schools, the school teachers, the school management at the school now had access to data. And after looking at the analytics and the data coming in from that device, they were actually able to see that the school pollution levels tended to be very high at certain time in the evening. And this teacher was very curious. They were asking, why is it that my area is always polluted at this time of the day? We asked them, okay, maybe try to be observant. If there is any unusual activity happening in the neighborhood. And what the teacher found out is that there was a garbage dumping site nearby where poor rubbish and they tried to burn it uh, during the evening. So that's just a simple case where someone has access to data and evidence, and now they are starting to understand what is the implication of poor garbage disposal in the environment. And then the teacher asked us to say, okay, so... And you reach out to the city authority to do something like this, and we sent a request to the city authority, and the city authority was able now to reach out to the area and enforce and try to minimize that worker disposal practice. So what this example shows you is that if you have actionable data platforms in a city or in a society, citizens mm-hmm. have access to the data and evidence, and they're able to see any issues in the neighborhood, they can quantify them, and they start demanding for action. And hopefully that action of course now starts translates into policy. So in a way the data availability and evidence availability closes this kind of loop between the governments and the citizens. So the citizens no longer requires a long chain of existing structures to voice their concerns, they have access to data and they can quickly start running for action, which hopefully you know can translate into data public policy. But of course, it's just one example in the case of environment. But you can imagine citizens having access to all the different sectors. I think that provides an opportunity for citizens to be aware, getting engaged in, contributing actively to the discussions because now they have evidence and they feel empowered and informed about the issues. Otherwise. If you go to environments where you you don't have this data, then people, they see issues, but they don't have even the starting point, to start engaging. The authorities may provide them with better policies, but even then, policies are put in place. If there's no data, then you cannot be able to monitor how well the policies are being implemented or not.
1: Thank you, Professor. So, broadly speaking, how can we use low-cost sensors, distributed systems, of IoT mobile devices and open data to assist and support climate mitigation and adaptation across Africa. Thank you so
2: much, Caroline, for that question. So technology has a huge opportunity in terms of addressing the environmental challenges that we have, and for the African continent specifically, we do know why certain technology infrastructures are not necessarily in place. We know that for instance, to address air quality issues, some of the countries, you know, have taken many years of investment in traditional environmental technologies. Let's take an example like air pollution. We know that many countries out there, they do have high grade reference monitors that costs you know, set up a dedicated air quality station. you might need to invest as higher than 100,000 US dollars. But what we see is that the unique setup of African urban spaces and many other developing countries is that the pollution profiles tend to vary quite a lot, location by location. Just a few meters from one location, you have different pollution profiles. Uh, so, that means that if you really need to understand the variations of air, the state of environment in a city, you need to invest quite significantly in installing a high resolution monitoring network. But this is not affordable with the traditional methods like setting up hybrid reference monitors. And this is a space for low cost sensors and mobile devices, mobile technology. Like, how do we look at those complexities, like the, these unique variations of, let's environmental conditions? the cost implications of higher technology and the other technology requirements, because you know that if you bring technology in the space, in most of the African urban spaces, you need to power them up, they need the internet, transmit data, and so on. So how do you then have an opportunity to create a device that can work within this environment? So the low-cost devices provide an opportunity that we can be able to create systems that work within contexts. For instance, be solar powered. It can transmit data over available IoT infrastructure or cellular connectivity. And once this data is available, then in terms of climate mitigation and adaptation, there's so much opportunity. It means that we're able to, for instance, understand the impacts of this climate and environmental challenges on the people more precisely and concisely, which of course helps in many programs in terms of understanding what kind of mitigation action needs be taken, but also it means that we're able to, at a high resolution, collect data over a long time and maybe understand how environments are changing over time and being able to institute ways of how the different changes in the environment might actually be affecting the populations that live in those environments. Perhaps one other learning lesson from this is understanding that for each problem you know, in like an African context might be facing that might have been necessarily, you know, addressed in other areas. You don't necessarily have to move the same technology to here. There are many examples that have failed like that where you just take technology involved from somewhere and try to place it in a context that doesn't work. But rather it calls for understanding what's is available elsewhere, what are the needs that we have locally, Uh, what are the technology bottlenecks that are there, and then how do we come up with the the right technology to be able to inform or accelerate uh, programs like climate change mitigation and adaptations in Africa at a more efficient rate or at a more faster rate than we would normally do without technology.
1: Thank you so much, Ignea, for the great submission. So moving on, looking at capacity building in Uganda and other parts of the continent, how can citizen services and data literacy empower local citizens? What kind of data would be useful to that purpose? Here again, can you give practical examples of what parameters could be measured?
2: Yeah, definitely raise a very important question in terms of data, data literacy and citizen access to data so maybe just to give you an example, in the case study where I've been heavily involved in air pollution monitoring, and' am trying to work with citizens to see that they have access to technology and they are contributing solutions. Our work involves heavy involvement of citizens, and we are not seeing citizens as people who just consume the solutions and the data coming from, you know, research and scientists. But we're trying to think about how can citizens be part of creating solutions? So one example I give you is that when we deploy our sensor network, we we'll deploy some of this sensor network on motorbikes, what we call motorcycle taxis, what we call border borders in East Africa. And for us initially, uh, we didn't think that, you know, we just do this technology it on these motorbikes and then work with the riders, tell them to collect the data, and maybe eventually we'll try to raise awareness between the public. There was something interesting, that them being part of that, the initial approach even in terms of design, they could actually give feedback about technology design. So for instance, we did figure out that these motorbikes don't necessarily have batteries or they don't maintain their batteries. So you now have to think about how you actually design a sensing device that you can put on motorbikes that can charge as fast as possible. Or some colors of the device or the position of the device might cause a discomfort to the rider or the passenger. So, how do you actually deal with all this? But what is also important is that when we are quite deliberate and actually involving them explaining what the technology was doing, then they started to care. So we started getting feedback like, I want to know what this device does. Then you explain it. And once you start explaining it, oh, they start now uh, knowing that actually exposure to air pollution causes illnesses or impacts on my health. So you see that from that kind of perspective, now there is already interest and demand in consuming data, which somehow naturally builds their data literacy and empowers now citizens to start demanding for the data. So at the end of the day, maybe the rider is asking, I would like to see how the pollution was for the data that I collected. For the devices that we have in people's homes, at the end of the day, they also want They ask, I want to see how the air quality is at my place. So you see that there's that now demand for the data and, of course, empowerment for access to data in terms of air pollution. So, in terms of how this could be practically measured, I think once you achieve impact, that's an interesting question in terms of how do you measure these are actually being impacted upon on this. I imagine that the metrics will change depending on what stage you are at. For instance, if you are running out a technology like this, maybe the measurement is really understanding on how people are actually accessing the data and how the demand is for the data, but I think in the long term, they want to actually start measuring how people are actually using this data to make some decisions. Can we be able to know maybe how many, maybe parents decided not to take their children out to play or stand school because they accessed data on air quality, or how many parents did call their city authority to take action on air pollution. The measurement and the metrics, I think, will evolve as you go through the impact pathway.
1: Lastly, but not the least, let's talk about your personal journey. Can you talk a little bit about your own journey, knowing that computer science has for so many years now been a discipline that attracts a lot of attention from students and the general public, being a very vast field that makes possible a multitude of areas of research and applications. What motivated you to follow a pathway that brings together computer and environmental sciences, and air pollution. Did you have this particular research field in mind when you started your undergrad studies? Or was it just something that you ended up involved in after?
2: When I studied computer science, there wasn't many examples of people studying computer science. It was a fairly new field and early on in my undergraduate studies, there was many temptations to switch to other sort of traditional disciplines at the time. But I think as I got into the program, I got to appreciate the ability to create solutions the ability to create something that can be used. I think that's really kept my interest going into computer science, at least initially at the early stage of my studies. But I think as I got into the program and I trying to understand the opportunities then what really interested me then is this possibility to see a problem within the different spaces that I'm in and then trying to use my knowledge to actually have a solution, computational solution to this program. So this kept me going, at least early on in my career. And that helped me a lot in, in many ways. So one, it did provide me with an opportunity to learn, I think, many things I was sort of getting interested in how I could use my knowledge to create some solutions. And that provided an opportunity for me to learn many things about computing that were not necessarily taught in school. But besides that, you know, having accumulated a bit of that foundation and knowledge, which provided my opportunity to not only, you know, excel at my academics, but also trying to see the potential applications of the computer science solutions. So from there on, fast forward, I sort of built this mindset which you know could come from as you know we get ideas from the different people we talk with different uh, groups we connect with. But then I got this idea that I think my way and method of approach is to think that when there's a problem in any area, try to think what would a computational solution look like, which is something that I always have told to my students every time I meet students that you know, as a computer scientist, you should see a problem and you might complain about it, but then just about complaining, start to think about what would a computational solution look like. So that thinking somehow has worked with me alongside. So, when I've encountered problems like air pollution, when I've encountered problems, you know, could be technology problems in you know, access to technology, I always try to think about what's the alternative. Contextual relevant computational solution that I could offer. So, that in a way has been uh, really interesting for me. What I have to say that when I started of course, I, I spent some years really focusing on the foundations, even though throughout my research, I always tried to connect my research to the practical solutions. I'll give you an example. I spent many years of research on programming language engineering. And programming language engineering in the core aspect of it is just thinking about how you build a new language or new expressive programming languages to write software. And here I was, I was thinking about, you know, how do I create appropriate programming languages to write mobile software? We are talking about 2007, 2008 there. You know, the new mobile platforms were coming on board. Android, iOS, they're just launching. And I was thinking about how do I create new language techniques to make it easy for people to write software but the connection to this to all my thinking was always okay when you're writing mobile software you're trying to make it easy as well to address some novel emerging challenges in the different contexts let's say you want to write a software run it on a mobile device that does not necessarily have internet all the time so how do you make it easy for someone writing software to ensure that they can be able to write software that is resilient to this kind of of contextual challenges. So even though I was offering the technology solution at the core, sorry, or you could call it foundational computer science solution, but I'm always thinking about how does this solution actually connect to the end user? Trying to provide a computational foundation, but also carrying along it, trying to see how this can actually solve a problem affecting people or society.
1: Thank you so much, Professor Engineer, for your great and enriching discussion.
2: Thank you so much, Karine, for having me, and thank you so much, Hester, as well, for having me on this podcast.
0: With that, I would like to thank our guest, Professor Engineer Benumugisha, and our interviewer, Katushabe Kalorin for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.